Hi, and welcome to this episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Carruthers, and this time my guest is Fiona Tweedy. She's been thinking about the need for explainable AI for a long time, and we had a fascinating chat on why this is important and why we should care about AI being explainable. We also talked about some of the risks and potential benefits associated with AI being explainable. A bit about Fiona. Fiona fell in love with the transformative power of data when working on the Australian government's principles on open public sector information and has held numerous roles analysing, governing and wrangling data in the years since. She's worked on embedded ethical approaches to data in commercial and research organisations and is passionate about demystifying tech and increasing data literacy. She holds a PhD in ancient history. Historians are always good people and is working on the blanket that she started crocheting during lockdown. Over to our conversation with Fiona Tweedy. Hello and welcome, Fiona. It's really great to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me. So what topic are we going to talk about today? I'd really like to talk about um, explainability of automated decisions and how we can create systems and processes that let people understand what decisions are being made about them and why and give them opportunities uh, to have input into that process. That sounds kind of important. But why, why do you think this is important and why should we care about this? I think it's incredibly important for a couple of reasons. I think that... We hear a lot of people talking about this idea of um, bias in AI, and that's a term that drives me a little bit crazy. Um, I don't, I don't think bias is quite the right word there, but we know that you know large data sets that are collected from the world will restrict, will reflect uh, the unfairnesses that are. In the world, for instance, you know, they may reflect uh, gender biases or racial biases uh, that exist. So I think it's really Yeah, I think we've all seen those examples where if you search in a search engine for pictures of doctors, most of the pictures are male. So that's the kind of thing that you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. And, you know, when we know that these there are these problems in the underlying data sets uh, that are used for decision making, I think it's really important that we've got good ways to ask questions about what's gone into making a decision. And if somebody is disadvantaged by a decision, that they're given paths to to question that and to ask for review. Uh, It kind of feeds back for me to the ideas of natural justice or procedural fairness, which says if if a decision is made about somebody which relies on information from a third source, uh, that person should have the opportunity to review that information and comment on it. So if I'm being turned down for a credit application or a job application based on computer says no, uh, surely there should be a way for me to know why the computer says no, and maybe to uh, refute um, or question the data that's gone into making that decision. Yeah, that's that's a really important reason why we should care. Um, so so what what are the key components that in in your idea of how we should approach this? Like, how should we do this? I can't even imagine. I think the first thing. It- I'm not sure either. I will say that. We're kind of inventing this as we build, as we fly the plane, aren't we? 
Absolutely. <laughs> so I think the first thing that goes in is you need to tell people when a decision is being made about them and when that decision is an automated one. I think we can have some proportionality there. I think depending on the effect of that decision on them, I don't we get recommendations all the time uh, fed to us based on previous activity. So it's not... So, so know, this is kind of the difference between an Amazon recommendation, which is based on data that has little impact on your life, to one for a job or a loan or something that can have major impact on your life. Yes, yes. I think really we should focus on those decisions that will have significant or can have significant impact on people's lives. Uh, that we need to tell them that these decisions are being made and in the event that the, um, the outcome is not the one they were hoping for, I think, and this is where it gets really, really hard, but creating opportunities for people to ask for review, um, to have human review of a decision, um, and as much as possible, showing people the basis for the decision and allowing them to respond. So my first job as a shiny grad um, at NAB was looking at home loans and home loan applications. And in the we had this program called Decision Tools. And in the event that Decision Tools said no to a loan application, it would come down to us and the credit team. And there'd be this whole process of a conversation with the borrower about why the computer had said no. And often it was to do with somebody's credit history being a bit patchy. And so they would write us a letter and explain why they had not paid their phone bill on time. And so I guess I'm that's my with that experience, I'm thinking about how do we replicate that um, at a larger scale for automate, you know, as automated decision making grows. So, and spreads. so th th this seems to be at, at its root a kind of a thing because we're going to be replacing the people making decisions with machines making decisions. You can argue with a person, but you can't argue with a machine. We can debate with a person and potentially sway them with the power of your debate. But yes. a machine, you can't argue with a machine, so we need to have mechanisms to be able to step off the machine path into another path. So are you conceiving of it something like, like New South Wales um, government's AI assurance framework has this idea if you're doing AI you can put it off to a review body? Are you sort of contemplating something like that? Yes, I think that would be a really positive um, thing to include and I, to have opportunities for review for decisions which and to have those human conversations um, when they are important decisions which are going to have big impacts on people's lives. So the other, the other question that arises comes to my mind, you know, could we even have like, you know, in the future potentially have industry-wide like, why should everyone set up their own AI question group? But, like, why don't the banking industry just have one? And why doesn't yeah. the higher education industry just have one? And then, then, you know, we don't have duplication across industries. So that, I think there's a lot more sophistication we could develop in this space. 
yeah, I think that would be, I think that could lead to a lot more fairness. I think there'd be interesting questions that would come up of, um, you know, pro- IP and because a lot of these tools are proprietary, so how an external body, like a, a peak body for bank decision making, uh, would then interact with the different flavors of tools um, that were being used across the banks. But no, that seems like a almost like an administrative appeals um, tribunal, uh, but for these automated decisions and making them industry specific, so you can get some perhaps consistency of decision making. Uh, which I think would lead to greater fairness. So, I mean, you raised a point just there um, that a lot of these tools and their models are proprietary. So there are issues that they're kind of a black box that we can't look into. And so we can't even get insight into the the tools. Is is this something where we have like a, you know, an, an argument to even move into more an open source sort of way direction for this kind of thing possibly and that's one of the other really interesting questions about explainability is we say explainable to whom and how much knowledge is it reasonable to expect somebody to have in order to understand some of these tools and processes it's certainly a discussion which has been happening in digital humanities scholarship if you know we can say, okay, well, the code's open source, but you still need a skill set to be able to interrogate that and to know what it means and to be able to say, okay, that is the point at which I think, um, you know, the, the, the data that you used uh, was not fit for purpose or the approach that you have used to analysing that data was not fit for purpose and I think it's returning the wrong results for that reason. Um it's quite a, a, you know, a complex conversation to have, and requires quite a lot of uh, expert knowledge, really, to be able to interrogate those sorts of tools. So we're obviously going to have to get better at this and find ways of doing it. Because I'm just, my mind's immediately going to some conversations we're having at the UNSW AI Institute at the moment, where some of the um, AI products that we're working with are so dense and so deep that it's actually really hard to unpack what's happening where in in the entire model. Um, so it's getting really complex really fast. Yes, and I think we're seeing lots of you know, new roles developing um, and new skill sets being prioritised and maybe maybe AI explainer uh, is going to be a, a job of the future or a, a skill set of the future um, that working out ways in which we can um, unpack some of these models or if we accept that they're perhaps too dense and too complex to um, be able to deconstruct readily, uh, where else you can have those intervention points? It's it's kind of interesting. I'm, I'm, my mind is just in a flurry of all of the issues that we're going to confront in this space. And AI is already in the wild out there now in real life. And we've already got those examples from the US where they have um, developed models that predict uh, criminality 
uh, and they're very heavily biased, you know, to particular racial groups. But that's not actually because of the model. That's because of the underlying data that they use to predict because... Absolutely, that populations of colour are already over-policed, so yeah. they are over-represented in the data. Yeah, and so so it seems to me that we might need to go back and start to look at start to actually have a hard look at data sets to see are they going you know to develop better ways of analyzing data sets to see if they will actually provide good inputs to a model and i don't think we've got any good tools for that at the moment yeah i think i think having a better understanding of the data where it came from, why it was collected, what's in there um, is going to be incredibly important. And again, it's not something we're good at yet, but I think we're going to have to figure that out. And the other one is understanding fitness for purpose. So the um, case you've just referenced, um, the compass tool was, my understanding was it was originally intended to predict the likelihood that somebody would be rearrested. And yes, in the US, black people get arrested for existing so the likelihood of arrest was much higher um, for those populations Um, but then they then took this data and started to try and use it as you said to predict criminality and to make decisions about how long somebody's sentence should be Um, which the likelihood you will be arrested um, it's a bit of a a leap to then decide that because this model thinks that you are more likely to be arrested by police, you should therefore spend more time in jail now. So yeah. I think, yeah. So ask, asking the right questions, understanding, so really understanding the implications of the questions you're asking. These are all not technical issues that we're talking about, though. These are, no, these ones aren't. These are technical things. So I think there are possibilities for great conversations about um what data is in there, what is the tool intended to do, and what what is it not intended to do, what would be a misuse of the tool. Um, those are questions which you absolutely don't need to be um, a hardcore AI engineer to be able to have. And, you know, this this, le- this leads me to think about um, our own very favourite robo-debt uh, which was a very egregious thing that the Commonwealth government in Australia did, which was not AI. It was just bad business processes and badly implemented bad business processes that sought uh, to monetize people in, in really evil ways, I, th- I think. I was speaking out about it back in the day. But that that was all happening without AI in the picture. There was very there was limited amounts of automated decisioning in that. So it's yeah. entirely possible that you can do really, really bad things using bad principles without AI. Yes, yes, you do, you do not need AI to make horrible decisions. And I have to say, following the Royal Commission, I was kind of expecting a story about algorithms gone wild. Um, and that really wasn't the story that emerged. As you said, it was a story about horrible business practices. It was a story about leadership being alerted quite early on to the really terrible adverse effects of this program and choosing to push ahead with it anyway. And I think that's something which um, when we talk about any sort of decision-making or particularly automated decision-making and particularly when it's affecting 
already vulnerable populations is what checkpoints do you have? What needs to, you know, what are the, at what point do we turn this thing off? Yeah. You know, is it when a frontline worker says, I am, you know, I think there are real risks that people are going to harm themselves. I think there are suicide risks coming out of this program. To me, that sounds like a really good moment to hit the big red stop button. Uh, so how do we make sure that there is a big red stop button on one and of that these programs? Seems, that's a really, that's the really big question that everybody needs to ask themselves before they implement anything is how do we stop it? Because once things get going, they build their own momentum and it gets, especially if people are using the outputs of it for secondary purposes, gets really hard to stop. Yes, I think so. You know, you've worked in big corporates like I have. And, you know, it, once things get momentum, it, it's very hard to stop. I remember once when I came in, there was a project that had been running a year and they asked me to review it. And I reviewed it and said, it needs to stop now. And they said, you can't tell the, you can't, cannot go and tell management that. And I'm like, it literally needs to stop. Yeah. And I think particularly when, you know, an attractive looking data set is coming out of a piece of work, telling people that they can't have it uh, can also be tough that we, we talk about, you know, driving access and reuse of data and data as an asset. Uh, but finding, but it also means that we have to have those those conversations where we say that's not what that data is for. It won't give you a useful answer. It will um, it will give you a wrong or misleading answer, um, or there's sensitive personal information in there, and you, know, you cannot use it for a secondary purpose. So um, having those, I guess, safeguards, those fences, um, and thinking about that at the outset. I think it's much easier, uh, you know, as you said, to say to say no up front than it is to stop something once it's started to get a little bit of um, uh, a head of steam. Yeah, that's it's really a fraught issue because I, I know that we've discovered a number of things where people are using data that they've got for one purpose for another purpose and they, they never want to give it up. And you know we've we've had to embed that in our data share our internal data sharing process so that we can stop them. Yeah, I think higher education's a, a really interesting space that you know because we do have so much personal information about staff and students and what they're doing, and there are all sorts of we have lots of smart creative people working in the sector who have you know interesting speculations about what can they find out um and and you know yeah. just just thinking about all the research data you know there, there's all every kind of data that you can imagine in the research space as you know so uh and and everybody is starting to think about using ai now and i love how there's been some um what do they call it? I forget. It's where you basically use AI to generate um, data set, lookalike data set. Oh, synthetic data. Synthetic data, that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, and and Toby Walsh um, tweeted the other day that this, this is not a good idea. Like it's not a very good quality data set. I'm going to talk to him on the pod at some stage about, about this kind of thing. But there's yeah. all sorts of things that just because you can do them, you shouldn't do. So just what do you think of some of the key issues and risks that, that we need to start to think about as we go into this world, wonderful world of AI? 
in the, in the context of explainability? Um, I think uh, Sarah, and I always stuff up her last name, Sarah Vokterbocha's book, um, Autom- or, uh, Technically Wrong, mm-hmm. Technically Wrong is the book, and she talks about doing sort of stress tests on um, a use case and asking who is your most vulnerable user and how might this affect them. And I think that's a really good starting point because it does get away from that need to or that desire to interrogate an algorithm and have an argument about whether really k-means clustering was the appropriate uh, approach in in this case. And ask those questions about who are we worried about um, and what could happen to them and how will we know if these people are suffering from or experiencing adverse outcomes, um, you know, what will tell us, what will the warning signs be and what can we do about it um, if that does happen. So my workplace recently considered um buying a facial verification technology, um, largely as an anti-spam measure. And there'd just been a story in the news about um, facial verification refusing um, a a Maori man with uh, facial tattoos, the moko, uh, because it thought it had a, a, it thought he was wearing a mask. Um, And so we immediately, so we had these questions about, okay, so the less you look like a cis white dude, the more an AI is going to struggle to identify your face. Um, So how do we make sure that, you know, how will we know if our non-white, non-cis presenting um, users are getting a worse outcome? What can we offer them in terms of, recourse if they do get a bad outcome um what alternatives can we offer them to going through this process if you have people who are uh what i would call the security vegans and don't want to hand over their biometrics so i think asking those questions up front before you even implement a tool like that gives you um a better chance of of building in that that big red stop button just made it just made me think while you were talking about the data ethics canvas, which is such a good tool um, for asking those very sort of questions that I think are really really important. Um, I'll put the link in the show notes, but um, a data ethics canvas is a thing that's like um, the business canvas, where you ask a series of very simple questions on one page, and if you and it encourages you to think about things like that very that who is the most vulnerable person and things like that. Yeah, I love the data ethics canvas and it does encourage you to ask those questions about where is the data come from, what was it intended for, what is might be in it or not in it that makes it better or worse for our proposed purpose. And it, I love it particularly because it, it prompts conversation that there are some um you know, data ethics assessments out there where you um, you tick boxes or you pick a number on a Likert scale and then it pops out a number at the bottom and says, you know, if your score is over 10, don't do this. If your score is under three, all good. Um, but that just seems to me like you're 
you know, almost automating the decision of whether you should use automated decision making, which <laughs> I know I, I like it because because it forces you to have a conversation at the start of a project, and it, and it helps you ask questions in the right categories. Um, so for, for for folks who are listening, it's from the Open Data Institute is the one I always use, and they're a good bunch of people who do sensible thinking around data. So. Um, I recommend if you're looking for something to help you do this, go there. I'll make sure a link's in the show notes, though. But I think that that kind of thing, I think a lot of people just need to have a lot more conversations is what I'm hearing. I think so. And I think having um, diverse groups of people in the room, uh, having, you know, your your product people um, as well as your, your technical data engineer people, um, having the people who can talk about who the users are and how we're expecting them to interact with a tool or how they might be affected by a tool, um, as well as the people who can talk about how it's going to operate and what's going on under the hood. Yeah, to- totally agree about that. Um, we're, we're basically out of time. So thank you so much for your time, Fiona Tweedy. It's always a joy to talk to you and lovely to have you. Thank you so much. And that is it for another episode of the Data Revolution podcast. I'm Kate Crothers. Thank you so much for listening. Please don't forget to give the show a nice review and a like on your podcast app of choice. See you next time. Mm-hmm.